As I look out into this sea of smiling faces, I am filled with a sense of loathing and revulsion. You are not workers. You are a pack of mangy, cut-chewing, ugly goats. Well, you're in for a treat. We have with us today a real man. Behold the glory. That is Homer Simpson. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Simpsons Countdown, the podcast in which we go back to the beginning and watch all of The Simpsons to trace the creative evolution of the series and count down, finding the exact moment in which it began its downhill journey into irrelevance. I'm Eric's Antoine, and this week I'm joined by my good friend Joshua Fine. We'll be discussing Homer Defined which originally aired on October 17th, 1991. It was written by Howard Gerwitz and directed by Mark Kirkland. In this episode, Homer saves the Springfield nuclear power plant from meltdown by using a counting rhyme to randomly pick the right button. He is honored as a hero and idolized by Lisa, but deep down he knows it was luck. He's eventually found out and enters the annals of the English language as to pull a Homer becomes synonymous with dumb luck. Meanwhile, Milhouse's mother forbids him to play with Bart because she thinks he is a bad influence. There's a bunch of stuff going on in this episode, which features John Lovitz and a cameo by Magic Johnson, which was heavily publicized at the time. After the break, Fine and I are going to break it down. So, without further ado, here we go. Bart, my mom won't let me be your friend anymore. That's why you couldn't come to the party. What's she got against me? She says you're a bad influence. Bad influence, my butt. How many times have I told you never listen to your mother? But Bart, she threatened to cut off my allowance. Whatever she's paying you, I'll double it. Finally, uh, just a, just a, a regular kind of funny, classically funny, just sort of standard uh, laid back fun Simpsons episode, which is more in line with what people remember when they look back on The Simpsons. They don't, when people look back on The Simpsons, they tend not to really remember the more maudlin, earnest, uh, sort of smiles through tears ones. They tend to remember these, which I think this is an episode that's already very much a season three episode. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the the season premiere, the, the Michael Jackson episode, was actually produced during the second season production run. And when Flanders failed, was also like a leftover script. I don't know if from the production run or whatever, but the, the first couple of episodes of the third season are sort of like leftovers from the second season production run or even from the time, you know, Maybe they're leftover scripts or whatever it is. But now, here's where you start to see that the style is changing. So, you know, we had the Fat Tony episode, and now we have this. And I think there's, like, a marked difference. I don't know if if I'm overstating it, because I know where we eventually go. But, I mean, I, just, I was curious what you thought, or what well, your I, I would agree on. that there, there's a marked difference. You know, I was I was thinking about this uh, before I rewatched the episode today, and 
you're right. We don't have the melodrama that we had in the first couple seasons. I think if this had been an episode from those first two seasons, we would have had much more focus on Homer wondering if, you know, how does he, you know, trying to reconcile being a hero also just finally picking a random button and, and blithely saving everybody and having to deal with it. That's barely touched on in this episode. I, I want to point out, interestingly, with this episode, this was written by a freelance writer. And this was the only Simpsons uh, script this guy ever wrote. This guy, uh, Howard uh, Gerwitz, he wrote a lot of uh, wrote for a lot of other TV. But you know, this episode stands out. Um, it, it, I think for that reason, because this guy never wrote another Simpsons episode again. We do have a little bit more of the biting satire uh, with this episode than we'd have in the previous seasons. It already starts off with their commentary on USA Today, where America's number two pencil is number one. <laughs> and pretty much all the criticism they have about USA Today then, uh, you could port that over uh, to uh, BuzzFeed or any type of internet clickbait, clickbait today. Yeah, well, that, this is the only was like this is the only paper that tells that tells it like it is that everything is just fine. Um, <laughs> that's very satirical, but also to your point about how maybe if this were a first season or even second season episode, first of all, you what, what the focus would be. I guess if the main plot line is that Homer sort of lucks into saving the plant from melting down, and maybe they would focus more on his internal struggle. Like they would take it seriously is my point, right? Where here, yeah, he feels a little bit embarrassed. You know, he, he knows that in reality he lucked into it. He's being hailed as a hero. But... The episode doesn't take it seriously. That's, well, that's you know what, what it would at. look like if it was uh, more melodramatic? It would look like the episode in season one where he loses a job and nearly considers uh, committing suicide off a bridge. It would yes, exactly. probably end up looking something like that. You know, after he, uh, you, know, sit, you, know, you know, somehow stumbles in and saves the plant, we go immediately to the B story of, uh, you know, um, Milhouse's mom not wanting Milhouse to be friends with Bart anymore. And... We have very little going back to Homer and his uh, ish, you know, uh, struggles of, of being uh, a hero, except for uh, Lisa admiring him in Quiet Off. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it does touch on that through line of, of Lisa, you know, loving her dad and, and considering him to be a hero at times, and, and especially in this era. I thought what was interesting with this episode, because it's talked about in the commentary, is the uh, technical flourishes of this episode in terms of how dramatic uh the uh, meltdown scenes are with the lighting and the animation and i remember that standing out i saw this episode first run it can be almost downright unsettling at times the way with the dramatic music that alf clausen is especially when homer's trying to do pick whatever uh nursery rhyme or whatever you know f gaming naming game to pick the button you know going from bubblegum bubblegum in a dish to eeny miny mo and all that <laughs> right yeah exactly and it's getting more uh, and more dramatic Okay, gotta pick a button, pick a button, pick a button. No, one potato, two potato, three potato, four. No, wait, bubblegum, bubblegum, in a dish. How many pieces do you win? No, no. I also saw this when it aired. And at the time, I was in New York still. And they really publicized Magic Johnson's participation in the episode. That He's got a cameo, basically. But they yeah. really made a big deal out of him being in the episode. And I think that that's something that really gets kicked into high gear, the whole celebrity voice um, cameos, starts to become 
much more prevalent now than it was. You know, they, they were more low-key, but then, you know, you open your season with Michael Jackson. So now, from this point on, they're going to make a big deal out of anybody who comes on, even if it's like, in the case of Magic Johnson, just a, a very brief cameo. But yeah, this is, you're, you're right. This is where the show's having its first wave of, of fandom. And, you know, we've heard previously that, you know, was celebrities doing, you know, cartoon voices was looked down upon. It's like, uh, you know, way back when movie stars, when they go to TV, it's like, oh, the career's on the decline. And yeah, this is when you're getting cultural cachet. This is when you're getting uh, celebrities that want to be on the show. And uh, admittedly, this is more of an example of like, hey, it's ex-celebrity. Let's all admire what, see what they have to say versus, you know, especially in these early days, you do have celebrities that play characters. They're not necessarily playing themselves. You know, we get a lot more of that later on in the show. Yeah. But occasionally we'll get these cameos we see with Magic Johnson. We'll get it with Sting. Uh, you know, celebrities playing themselves or maybe a parody of themselves. Uh, not necessarily, you know, doing what Dustin Hoffman did as, you know, Mr. Bergstrom or, you know, what Michael Jackson, you know, even, you know, kind of what Michael Jackson did in his episode. Where he's playing, you know, someone who's pretending he thinks he's Michael Jackson, and and that was a very original way to bring him in. Um, but you're right. I mean, at this point, it still isn't sort of like a celebrity cameo extravaganza. Usually, you'll get celebrity cameos, but they'll be like sports figures or pop stars. But if you get like an actor, most of the time the actor will play a character. And so, like in this particular case, you have that, and that's the big thing that was publicized. Um, but you'll, we've also got John Lovitz uh, in a very funny guest role as Aristotle. Oh God, what a weird Just name! Whatever yeah. stereotypical yes. uh, shipping magnet name you can think of. I I also like to think of him as like a Dino De Laurentiis type. Yes, I'm aware that Dino De Laurentiis is Italian. Not only does Lovitz voice that guy, we only again see in the um, in the baseball episode, but he also yeah. plays like Mr. Devereaux in the in the uh, soap opera that's playing. Uh, before it gets interrupted by the uh, the uh, special report from the news. Yeah, that's great. Like, that's very funny. Uh, John Lovitz is very funny. And I guess they wouldn't bother really publicizing his participation because it wasn't the first time he was doing it. And ju just like they didn't tend to, to, like, trumpet Phil Hartman whenever he would show up. You know, it was like he'd just be there. So right. he's almost like a, he's almost like a, uh, what do you call it? like a featured player at that point? Yes. You know, like I, a special I, utility player that they bring in for like certain characters. I think it, again from the commentary, the reason they brought Lovitz on, you know, reasons they did bring him on is that Lovitz had the ability to turn emotion right on a dime. Yes, he has that thing, which I think is something that he would do even like on SNL. You know, it's it, it's it's part of his shtick. Right. You know, the, the part he comes out and it's like. Uh, like as I look, uh, like as I look at this audience, I am filled with a sense of loathing and revulsion. The way he does that is very funny, but it's part of his shtick. I think that at this time, this is the, yeah, this is the fall of '91. I think Lovitz and Hartman were at this time they were regulars on SNL. They were in the regular cast, right? Right. Right. So it's almost like they were sort of going to SNL to get you know a. They got those guys. They got they got Hartman. They got Lovitz. And what you were saying about celebrities that 
celebrities doing TV it was sort of a downward thing for them, right? Like back in the 70s, if you showed up on the love boat, your career is over. You know, either your career is just beginning or your career is over. That's that's what it is if you're, if you're on the love boat or on Fantasy Island or whatever it is. But I think in this particular case, what ended up happening with The Simpsons is that it sort of became like Saturday Night Live, where... Like, you've made it. You know, if, if you get asked to guest on The Simpsons, it's the equivalent of being asked to host Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it's a mark of pride. It's it's a, like a badge of honor type thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I thought that was excellent what you thought of about with, like, the celebrities who are actors. They'll typically play, around this time, they're going to play characters. You saw it with Danny DeVito. He's not playing himself. He's playing Herb Powell. And, uh, but you have people that are not actors. They're going to play themselves or, like, a form of themselves and, and uh and and make fun of themselves but yeah that and i remember this with the promos when you had a celebrity they would advertise that on the simpsons it's like special guest star you know whomever and you would look you would watch for that and that's how you would remember oh that person was in the episode um and you would look out for that you know you would look out for that type of thing you know on uh, coming up on on thursday nights but again, like they would publicize what was the big draw. So that's interesting to consider that John Lovitz was not the big draw, even though John Lovitz is, was a recognizable comedian from Saturday Night Live, but he's not exactly a marquee name. That's the thing that it's interesting to kind of go back. What the big deal was about this episode was, oh, yeah, Magic Johnson is going to throw he's going to show up in it for a couple of seconds. So that might be funny. He's got like two lines or three lines now. We're, we're talking about how the episode is basically very funny and how the focus shifts into the B story, which is about Bart and Milhouse's friendship. Now, this is a storyline that here's an example of something that in season one or two would have probably been handled in much more maudlin fashion, I think, than the way it's handled here, where it's kind of sweet. It's kind of like, oh, you know, uh, Bart and Milhouse are being kept apart because Milhouse's mom thinks that Bart's a bad influence, etc. We all know that Bart, deep down, is really just a good kid. He's just, you know, he's just mischievous or whatever, but he's not, like, he's not bad. He's not, a, like, a bad person. Well, it, it doesn't help when you look at the photos of, of Bart and Milhouse's relationship. Every photo is involved where it looks like Bart is doing, like, grievous bodily harm to Milhouse, and they talk about that in the commentary. Like, here's a photo of him burying him in sand. Here's a photo of him nearly sawing him in half. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then uh, when uh, Milhouse's mom allows uh, uh, Bart to be friends again, he gets out the dead-eye BB gun and racks yeah. it a few times before going back out inside. <laughs> but see, I like. I think that's a great scene. I think the scene where Marge Simpson goes to talk to Milhouse's mom, and they have a nice conversation, and that's a really nicely handled scene that doesn't go too far in the you know into the modeling thing, but it does ground the situation in a in a relatable concept, where. I mean, she brings up the fact that they're very good friends. All they've got is each other. You know, they, they're all, you know, they're frequently bullied. You know, they're not, they're, it's not like either of them are the most popular kids in the school, right? They're frequently bullied. Uh, what was it in the, in the Christmas pageant? They're they always play sheep. sheep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Marge is genuinely trying to appeal. You know, she's going to say, look, I know that Bart's not, you know, I know Bart occasionally is a troublemaker or whatever else, but deep down inside, he is a genuine friend, and Milhouse needs him too, you know? 
when they cut away after Marge has that conversation with, I think, uh, Luann is her, is her name. Uh, you see Milhouse just stomping his, you know, trying to play the, use the seesaw alone, and you can see how depressing that is. Bit of uh, pointless trivia, and I actually thought this for a long time. Uh, the name Van Houten wasn't named after the Manson follower, which apparently was a friend of the writer who had that last name, and he just liked the last name. So that's how uh, Milhouse got Van Houten as a last name. It has nothing to do with, with the Manson follower at all. I, I thought that for the longest time. Milhouse does come from Richard Nixon's middle name. You know, something else I thought worth mentioning about this episode, because I was trying to, you know, going back to what Homer was doing, you know, picking a just random button to avert a nuclear disaster, you know. You know, we think about, uh, at least I was thinking about, you know, with decisions. You know, we think when someone makes a decision that, especially something that's monumental, we think that there's like a lot of thought and deliberation. I know it could be some completely random and arbitrary thing, you know. I'll give an example. You know, like you and I saw that Netflix documentary, The Toys That Made Us. And they talked about the Star Wars Kenner figurines, which is like three and three quarters inches. It's some, you know, odd number for an action figure. And the only reason that it, that size was picked was because the guy who ran Kenner at the time, when he got the license, he went to his staff and he says, I want the figures to be this big. And he took his thumb and his forefinger and he, and he held it out long enough. So this was like a really big guy. And they just measured the thumb and forefinger, the distance between the two. And that's how those action figures got the size they did. You know, I, I, I always enjoy stuff like that because it's, it just it just puts in perspective when you're struggling to try to make a choice on something or a decision or, or try to plan for something. And you realize that not a lot of thought is put into some of these monumental things. You know, someone stakes uh, a company's livelihood on or, you know, or a point of, uh, of iconic fiction, you know, like 1984. Why is it called 1984? It was written in 1948, and Orwell just flipped the two numbers. That's true. Uh, you know, I, I just appreciate stuff like that. You know, I don't know if it's instinctual. I don't know if it's just you think that there's more to it than there's, there's not. I'll, I'll conclude with this point that, uh, you know, I liken it to, you know, you and I are big fans of the show Quantum Leap. And, you know, there's the uh, two-parter that was done as a response to GFK, where Donald Belisario, who was the showrunner, the guy who created it, uh, had actually served in the Marines, was in the same Marine unit with Lee Harvey Oswald. So he did this two-parter as a response to Oliver Stone's JFK. And there's a scene where Al is talking to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in the in the waiting room. And Lee Harvey Oswald is played by some guy from Sex in the City. I, I've seen this actor before. I just don't know his name. And he's talking about, you know, trying to find out if Oswald did it alone and all this stuff. And, you know, and Al brings up this conversation of that, you know, people will think when there's a monumental event that there must be some grand scheme. You know, this is conspiracy thinking. There cannot be, it, you know, people can't just accept that it was a random event or it's just one individual or it was just some simple action that led to this huge uh, change and that there must be something more there. There can't be, you know, it can't just be that. People can't handle that, that they think there's got to be, you know, you know, hands on the lever. There's more people involved. That there's, it's just this grand design, and it isn't. And it, it just it really throws people for a loop. You know, it was just something that reminded me when I was watching the episode where, you know, uh, Homer, you know, does it twice. He solves, you know, he solves two meltdowns by picking, doing the most, you know, idiotic thing possible. <laughs> right. Well, two things. First of all, I remember that episode well, the Quantum Leap episode. And in fact, that one bit that you're talking about, I mean, Dean Stockwell playing Al gives this big speech 
you know? So that, that's the one part that I always remember, that there's that, because it's, it's genuinely incisive. It's kind of a repudiation of conspiracy theories in general. And it's sort of saying how the reason they exist, he, you know, Dean Stockwell, I can't, I'm paraphrasing, right. but he basically very dramatically delivers something because if just one lone nut could do that, what hope is there for the rest of us? That's the concept there, that the reason that conspiracy theories exist is because we can't accept that just some lone nut could kill the president of the United States. It's a crush. Right? That's what it is. Right. And that's one thing I remember. And then I also remember that at one point, Sam actually starts becoming Lee Harvey Oswald. And I don't remember like what uh, happens, why that happens. But it was, I mean, it happens because they needed a dramatic twist. Right. I, I think what, what for, for suspense, you know, like, it was that and, and the idea that he couldn't just, you know, he had to carry out the the steps to the assassination. There was no way that right. fate or whatever was just going to let just say, well, I'm on this day on November 22nd, I'm just going to sit here at home and do nothing. And they, they, I know this is not a quantum leap podcast, but I know that kind of uh, merging happens in other episodes where Sam uh, loses, you know, control of himself. Um, Quite briefly, there was another episode. I remember this one. It was, it was set in 1979. He plays a cop, and it's basically a psychologist ordering him to kill himself. And he's, you know, regressing to the childhood of the cop. And he's, you know, and yeah, it's really disturbing. That that's one of my favorite episodes. That yeah. that one is great. And then also there's the one called Shock Theater, which I believe is like the, I think it's the finale for the third season. Shock Theater, where right, he's where like he the old characters. Exactly, and he actually starts becoming them. Right. And so basically it's it's an acting showcase for Scott Bakula is what that is. It's like the two things. It lets him stretch and play some of those characters that he didn't really get to play, you know, like actually actually get to play them, whether it's, you know, the 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 driving Miss Daisy guy, you know, the, the black uh, chauffeur or or, you know, the, the mentally challenged uh, person that he played in one episode, whatever it is. Right. All these it, it allows Scott Bakula to stretch. Um, I think Scott Beckett is a, a really wonderful actor. And, oh, he and, is. I would, uh, I would agree. And I think that, you know, I can't say what he's doing on NCIS New Orleans, but, you know, the guy's, you know, he can do whatever he wants. And uh, he's quite good in, um, there was a show on HBO called Following, and where he plays a, uh, an older gay man. And he, he was excellent in that. And uh, even shows up in uh, Soderbergh's Behind the Candelabra, briefly, as the guy who brings... Uh, Matt Damon into uh, Liberace's circle. He has a fantastic porn stash in Behind the Candelabra, as I, I think remember. his character's name is Dick Black. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And and when you said Falling, is that the one with Kevin Bacon? Uh, no, no, no. That's a TV show. I think oh, okay. uh, it was an HBO show. Um, I forgot the guy's name. That I think he did a movie called The Weekend. And it was about, it was just a whole movie about two gay men you know, they met each other, they hooked up, and then it's just about their, you know, dealing with each other over the period of a weekend. A British guy did it. Uh, but enough yeah. of, of the wonderful show that is Quantum Leap that somehow still hasn't been remade. But We could go into a whole, uh, into, into a whole slew of reasons why or, or problems that could potentially arise if they ever try to remake it. Still hold, holding out hope for a reboot. There will, like, it is also one of my favorite shows. So, yeah, it's like, uh, I'm still holding out hopes for it's for. It's the closest you can get to an American Doctor Who, I think. Uh, yeah, pretty much of the situations and you could have any story out there. But, you know, going back to what I was saying and using Quantum Leap as an example, it's just when you follow history and then you, re you know, when you you see that what thought is put into, you know, put into people when they make these monumental decisions, it 
it can really throw you off and realize that, you know, when you may be struggling with something that you're trying to make a you know decision on or a move on, and that you may could end up just overthinking it compared to what else went on there. It it, it does really put in perspective, um, you know, how things can go on and how things can change and and what thought or what little thought is put into it. I, I you know, it's just something I I came to the conclusion on in watching this episode. You know, un, unrelated. I think it's Luann, yeah, Milhouse's mom. Uh, uses the term bad influence again. I'm a really young kid when I saw this episode. I didn't understand what bad influence meant. But the only reason I knew what that phrase was was because I remember we had a blockbuster video near our house and there was a standee display for the film Bad Influence with Rob Lowe and James Spader. I just remember seeing the phrase bad influence. And I had not, obviously, was not going to watch that movie at the time. But... Have you seen it since? Have you seen that movie? I have seen it since. It is a terrible movie, and James Spader is badly miscast. The it's very entertaining, thing, though. It's very it entertaining. Hilarious, in a kind of hilarious uh, way. The only other thing worth mentioning about that movie is the office that James Spader works in. I worked in that building for a period of time, and this is like 25 years after that movie was made. But because the place I worked at was so cheap, it never changed the look of the office at all. It was all the same. So, yeah, I didn't remember it taking place in L.A. For some reason, I thought it was New York. But I, I mean, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. So I, I, don't, I don't remember that detail. But yeah, I think it's Spader uh, lives on the beach or something like that. I know it ends at the it ends at a pier. Uh, so it does end at a pier. Yeah, that, that, yeah I remember that well. Not unlike falling down. But um, yeah, it's a terrible movie. You want to see James Spader play a nerd? I think that's as good as you're going to get with that movie. Well, I think that maybe one of the concepts for Bad Influence was to cast James Spader against type to sort of be like, oh, well, he's usually the preppy douchebag or, you know, let's let's make him the opposite of the character he played in uh, Pretty in Pink. You know, um, is it Pretty in Pink or Sixteen Candles? Yeah, I think it was because um, I've only seen I've seen Pretty in Pink. I've never seen Sixteen Candles. I've seen them both and I get I always get them mixed up. So yeah. that's why I, that's why I'm saying I don't. I think Those particular doesn't have John Cryer. I don't think is. Uh, I could be, but again, I could be. Pretty in Pink has John. Pretty Cryer. Pink has John Cryer. I know that. Yeah. So you're saying that James Spader isn't the one that's not with John Cryer. I, again, I could be wrong. I'm likely wrong. Which, you know, which I guess is Sixteen Candles. I got, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this, we're we're going we're flying way off the rails. No, well, actually, I have a question for you actually with regards to what you were saying um, about the whole power plant thing. Now, here here's something that is just blatantly unrealistic. There is a meltdown, and this is Homer's job. He's the health, he's the safety inspector, or whatever it is. And he he both causes the near meltdown and then is able to solve it with eeny, meeny, miny, mo. fair enough. But here's the thing. The implication that in another scenario, like at Shelbyville, the same problem starts to happen and Homer can do, I'm like, doesn't Shelbyville have a, someone on staff who is supposedly equipped to do this? I, I mean, I get why they did it for a narrative purpose. It's a book. Right. Out, you know, it's two incidents, but I agree with you. It's the, the fact that it's Shelbyville, because, because if the same scenario would happen at the, at the Springfield plant, then it would make sense because that is his job, you know, except this time they happen to witness him do that. But at Shelbyville, 
isn't there someone that you know and so it's weird because like they're, they're sitting he's sitting there it's like just do what you did before i'm like I mean, clearly somebody here would know what to do. In, well, in and you have to assume it's like, wouldn't this also just be a, be a completely different plant with a completely different setup? I don't think it's there's a one size fits all to uh, power generation. Although, I mean, from the manual it's, <laughs> that he's reading in, in when he's when he's freaking out, it's like you just purchased a 1952 low yield. But that is that's like that's really absurd. And again, I'm not criticizing it. I'm not saying it's a flaw. Okay. Of course, they're they're doing it for narrative purposes. They're doing it for humorous purposes. It works in the con in in a humorous context. It totally works. But if you try to you know think about it logically for just a second, it's absolutely absurd. It makes no sense at all that this is you know Homer's undoing is the fact that in a totally different power plant they happen to not have anybody equipped to do that. So if Homer hadn't shown up that day, they would have been screwed, basically well, as well. Well, not only that, if, it, it, if you want to take that logic, the fact is that the Springfield plant shouldn't just have one guy who has the ability to stop the meltdown. I think, you know... With one said, button, with one, one button, button, with one random button, like it's that easy. Interestingly, you know? it was one button that triggered the uh, Chernobyl meltdown that we saw from the HBO miniseries. Fantastic miniseries. Yes, uh, wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, uh, what was it? Not great, not terrible. What, yeah. what was like the famous line from that? Not, not great, great, not terrible. terrible. Yep. And um, uh, it was like three point four six Runkin or something. Which, when I saw that phrase online, I was like, "How do you pronounce that?" And then I finally saw the saw the movie. I mean, you know what a what a nice written by the guy who wrote the Hangover movies of all things. Yes, yes, yes. And now he's been tapped to do. Uh, to do The Last of Us for HBO as well. And, you know, as a fan of that game, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but, I, you know, I'll... We'll see. We'll see well, what the happens. Well, Stan can get released, and, I mean, I, I don't know what you, your thoughts are on that, but... Uh, Haven't watched it. Haven't watched yeah. it. Uh, I'm sure that they'll probably do The Last of Us at some point because they need that content badly, and they'll, they'll get yeah. it done. But, yeah, overall, I mean, this was, this was a... You know, I, initially when I came across this episode, I thought it was going to be much more of a trifle. Yeah, uh, it's like, oh, this plot, this is like something out of like a generic, you know, typical sitcom where someone does something heroic and they, you know, it could be any number of sitcoms, just different settings. But you're right about the humor. Uh, you know, interestingly, this was the first episode that had the use of the word ass twice in in the show. <laughs> I've seen episode, seen versions of it where Bart says, you know, bad influence my ass. And in this one, he says bad influence my butt. And you know, and then they flip it with Burns, where it's like, kiss my sorry ass goodbye. And then it changes, depending on the cut that you see. See, because I rewatched the episode now, and I had seen it before on, on DVD or whatever it is, but I used to own, I used to have this episode on VHS. I, I taped a great part of the, um, of the third season because, you know, I, that's back then I used to tape them every week. So I was like collecting um, Simpsons episodes on, you know, VHS. And I was in New York when this aired the first time and I taped it when it aired. And I remember clearly that in the version that aired, Bart said, bad influence my ass. And you're right to think that because I remember, you know, watching episodes with that. I think that, you know, maybe it's a syndication thing. But yeah, it's and they, again, this is something they talk about on the commentary in terms of censorship that. They had a real hard time getting that word in there. Okay, so here's the thing, though. That does it makes more sense. The joke, the gag, the 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 scene actually makes more sense if it's bad influence my ass, 
because that's the whole point. I mean, the whole point is, okay, so Bart is foul mouthed, and you know, and the him, him saying, bad influence, my ass. He follows it up with the line, how many times have I told you never listen to your mother? Okay, so the whole thing is very funny. Yes, he's yeah, definitely it's a, terrible, a, contradictory a terrible statement. influence. Right. It, that's what makes it pretty funny. <laughs> but about that, we were talking earlier about the scene where Marge goes to visit the mom, sort of talk, like convince her to let them hang out again. At one point in that scene, and you might not remember this detail, but this has always been on my mind ever since the first time I watched the episode. And then when I revisited it, I remembered, you know, and I, and I said, yeah, that's right. This, this is always something that was on my mind. When Marge is sitting there talking to the mother and Milhouse's mother says something the other day, Milhouse told me my meatloaf sucks. And you could, I, is it me or does Marge roll her eyes? I think she makes an, she, she does, I, she has an expression. I don't remember exactly the expression, but. The shot's not on Marge, the shot's on Milhouse's mom. Right. But you sort of see like a profile view of Marge and you get the sense that the pupil sort of goes upward. Sucks was another word that you would not encounter on TV. I know I was told not to use that word in the house. Seriously? I can understand maybe your parents telling you as a kid not to say that. But um, but as far as it not being on TV, I'm not sure. I mean, was it considered profanity? I don't think it was considered profanity. I think it was considered something that just, it was kind of vulgar. You know, I remember once getting schooled about the difference between vulgarity and profanity. I remember this. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's a vulgar phrase. Yeah, I was not allowed, it would not be allowed to use the word sucks. And I didn't get it. And then later on, I understood what that, what was referencing. Oh, okay, now I understand maybe why my folks were, un, were uncomfortable with me using this phrase. But, you know, on the schoolyard, you just say some, you know, because whatever was garbage, you just said it sucked and then uh, moved on. As well as you say, well, that blew, and then, uh, or both sucks and blows. Obviously, did we have any idea that was referencing oral? No, we did not. It's true that it comes from, from, uh, from a euphemism for oral sex. But if you think about it, it's like we use it to describe something bad. Yeah. Most people like being born. So, <laughs> so I mean, I, I don't really. Okay. You know, have you watched that? Speaking of, have you watched that uh, Netflix thing, the, the thing about swear words? I haven't. I wasn't really interested in it. You know, I'm, I admit I'm a bit sore with Netflix uh, relatively recently because the way they canceled Glow. I mean, I get it. Oh, you've decided not to support them for the time. Oh, no. Eat. I'm still paying my $13 a month foolishly because I can't explain. <laughs> I'm still because it's it's inertia and you, but yeah I know what you're talking about I looked at the episodes they're like 20 minute episodes and they have yeah. one on on, on on fuck and shit and I watched I watched a couple of them I watched a couple of them I haven't watched the whole thing um it's okay it's okay yeah. really like I was expecting something diff like better you know um but you sort of know that you're in trouble because e- even in the very first episode which is on on fuck they keep towing the line that it's, you know, um, fornication under consent of the king. So, hmm. you know, it's not getting very, they're not, I, it's not, I, I was expecting it to really be about the history of the word, you know, in a, in a detailed way. But it really is just an excuse for Nicolas Cage and a bunch of other panelists, most of them comedians, to just sort of riff on the significance, the cultural significance of a given word. Not really the history of it. So it, it, 
And it has kind of the style of one of those VH1 things. Yeah, or... I love the 80s where it's got like glib commentary yeah. and right. here's a, we're going to crack a joke at the expense of this word. And That's basically kind of reminds me of Drunk History. I, I know a lot of people like that show. I, I never got into it. Yeah, well, I mean, at least that one like legitimately talks about history. You know, it, it's just humorous to hear people sort of sort of mangle the events. But when they tell you, I mean, what they tell you happened did happen. Maybe oh, yeah. just not not in the way that they're telling you. So there's some value to that show. This one, I mean, it's a lark. I guess it's kind. Of, some some of the riffs can be a little bit amusing, um, but it really, yeah, it's not that great. It's uh, seems a bit forced. Uh, Nicholas Cage is being Nicholas Cage. Yeah, it's you know, stunt and casting, I guess. It's maybe he had more tax casting. debts to pay, so he decided to do this when he's not yeah. on his fifth or sixth movie of the month. What I will say is this about Nicholas Cage in that show the way he's got you know he's got his hair short and his beard he looks so much like his uncle it's unfucking believable well he's clearly uh, dying I, that beard Let, let's be real here oh well that, of course of course he is and the hair um yeah. assuming assuming um it you know it's got it's receding it's, it's probably real well, it's but i'm um, like that for like 25 years if you go yeah back to yeah his, uh, leaving las vegas days but yeah he definitely is getting the uh francis ford look going on there it's I, I just I was struck by that. It was it's not something that I ever really thought about until I watched this. I, I looked at it and was like, he looks just like Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, he's got that more rounded face. And yeah. uh, I think of the only instance where I ever saw Francis Ford Coppola unshaved, well, relatively clean shaven, was in Hearts of Darkness, where he's on the beach. And he when I saw and he's, you know, wandering around, you know, with his shirt off. Not a pretty sight. No, not at all. But he looks kind of like uh, Gary Delabate from the Howard Stern show. <laughs> also, he does. He does his huge teeth and like, oh yeah, you're 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 totally right. And I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And and he's sitting like on this sort of like beach chair, like waving his his hands around. This is like Irwin Allen. This is like you know like he's he's talking about what he, what his intentions are for the film, and uh, you know he's going wildly over budget and whatever, and he's looking really insane. And he's, you know, he's not in great shape in that documentary uh, at that time. You know, he's he's got this huge pot belly, like beer gut. Yeah, and, and he's got some uh, what they refer to as moobs. So yes, male yes, breasts. he's got a pair of those. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, but you know, uh, that's yeah. And let, let's let's stop body shaving the yeah. Let's not now. do that. Let's you know, uh, get off that. One. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so okay. Final word on this episode because I, I I don't know. I, I think one of the reasons why we're rambling is because we don't have much to say about it. But final words on the episode. Uh, so what's what do you think? I, I think it's a good uh, entry point to the type of humor that we later know uh, the golden age of The Simpsons for. I think that it's not one of the top flight episodes. I think it's like if you stratify it, it's definitely in the I think in the top you know quarter because it's not an av- it's not a middling episode. I think it's a you know in, we're starting to see more of the the humor that it's known for shine through and less of the melodrama. It's just not one of the more monumental episodes, like the one the episode you just did previously, where, uh, you know, Bart, you know, gets in with the mob. That's an iconic episode. And yeah. This, this episode has its moments, and but it's definitely not at that level. So not as bad as, say, you know, when Homer goes to Capital City and becomes a baseball mascot in terms of not much happens. Things do happen in this episode quite a bit. But it's not as memorable as again as you know Bart joining the mob. So that, that's that's the way I'd see it. Yeah, yeah. More importantly, it's it's got 
good gags, good memorable gags. And there is enough, yeah, yeah enough, enough memorable lines, enough memorable like gags, genuine laughs that make it stand out from the pack. I also agree that it's probably not one of the more classic episodes. Certainly not one of the most memorable episodes that involves the plant because there are other episodes, even in this very season, that are far, far more memorable and important to the Simpsons canon. But there are enough gags here that, yeah, this is a good one. I mean, you already start to see the, the, the series operating on a slightly, on a higher level of comedy. Like, they are definitely on that uptick as they enter the golden age. And I think this that can be attributed to the fact this is a freelance guy who wrote it. This isn't someone of the main staff that put it together. So, and actually that makes me wonder when we see other episodes written by freelancers, we see this type of thing because these are not guys that are completely keyed in with the attitudes of the show and what the general vision of the show is. So, I, and I know there are going to be more episodes like that, uh, you know, as, you, as we go further along. I think it helps to bring in a fresh perspective because the existing staff of writers, they were TV veterans sitcom veterans and comedy writing veterans they and they brought their very particular sensibilities and as the show moves into you know goes through the third season it is during the third season that i think the staff begins to change That's right. i think conan o'brien already comes in he's not like a you know i think i'm pretty sure he already comes in in the third season maybe pitching some ideas it's not until the fourth season that he actually starts writing but um, I'm pretty sure he starts to become part of the staff in the third season. You're right about the staffing changes, because in the um, season four DVD set, a running through line through a lot of the commentaries is that this is when the staff basically completely turns over. You don't have guys like Jay Kogan or Wallace Wolodarski. You don't have, like, uh, I don't think Sam Simon's involved as much at all. You know, James L. Brooks isn't really involved as, as much anymore. You have more comedy coming through and then you have you know periodically i think it's maybe every three two three seasons uh you know staff turnover and a different show will go through uh you know especially i think as we get into the fourth and fifth season where you have all those veterans this season start splintering off and doing their own thing we have that with al gene and mike reese you know doing the critic and uh other projects from the other staff as well yeah. Yeah. And as for James L. Brooks, yeah, I think his sensibility really starts to get filtered out almost completely there where you had a really you could really see his influence throughout the first two seasons. This starts to get filtered out heavily in season three. Yeah, it'll come up periodically and we'll, sure. we'll see that clearly in, in future sure. episodes. But I, I sure. completely agree with you. We're now starting to see a clean break from the melodrama of the first two seasons coming through in this third season. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like that ratio of, of melodrama and, or sweetness to humor. And you can see the, those ratios starting to change. 15 seconds to core meltdown. Just do what you did before. All right. Any, 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 moe, catch a tiger by the toe with the holler, let him go. Any, 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 Crisis has been averted. Everything is super. Thank you, Homer, for saving my plant with that idiotic rhyming. 
Do you even know what button you push? Sure, Mo. So that's it for this week's installment of The Simpsons Countdown. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this, consider showing your support. It's really very simple. Give us a like or a favorable rating. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Anchor FM, and other podcasting platforms. So adding a brief review, if possible, might actually help boost the podcast's profile. And if it isn't too much trouble, please do share this with all your friends on social media. Speaking of social media, you can follow the Eric's Anton Network on Facebook or subscribe to it on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at ericsantoinenet, and feel free to find me and follow me on Letterboxd, where I frequently post film reviews you may agree or disagree with. I'm Eric's Antoine. I'll be back next week when Chris Prentice and I will be discussing Like Father, Like Clown, in which we learn of Krusty's rather sad history before becoming the Springfield TV superstar he is today. And I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, stay safe out there. See you next week. Oh, absolutely, he committed it alone. Not a doubt in the world he committed it alone. When, um, when Oliver Stone made uh, JFK, none of that is true. Here's what happened. Because I was also, I had worked in Dallas, and I had gone to the book deposit. Shh.